I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? Your police plan on taking me in. I would much prefer that to the alternative. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck. And he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. This is the film board from the next reel, and we spoil movies. I'm Pete Wright, and this month we're go go for Gosling in Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. Thugs in residence for tonight's roundtable. 
Andy Nelson. That's the worst、uh, way to say my name in French that I've ever heard. I'm a little embarrassed that you actually just said that. What is it? I'm t- what, what is, what, how would you、uh, say cer- it? Certainly not Andy, that. Andre and Stefan Sarmento. So, do you need me to com- <laughs> complete a baseline test? Because I'm feeling a little off tonight. <laughs> yes, I want to make some sense of a baseline test. But before we do that,、uh, you can find out more about this show and its sibling shows at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at thenextreel. And we greatly appreciate your direct support on Patreon at patreon.com slash thenextreel. Subscribers get access to our members only Slack group, which is awesome. Special shows like the weekly Saturday matinee, which we just did this morning as we record this, and other fun perks for subscribing. Thank you so much for your support. Oh, I think it's fair to say that we were all angsty going into this movie.、Uh, and. Boy, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. So、uh, I'll toss it to you, Andy. Where would, where would you start in talking to this, and, and Andre? Well, I, that's, a, that's a good question. I guess, I guess the,、uh, a good place to start is、uh, how does this,、uh, I mean, this is a sequel that came after a film of、uh, 1982, is when Blade Runner came out.、Um, so, kind of like, you know, Uh, it's been a very long time.、Uh, I mean, even like the Mad Max Fury Road sequel had, you know,、uh, Mad Max Thunderdome、uh, in what, when was that, like 90 or something like that? So it didn't have as long of a wait and it had more sequels、uh, that it was following. This was a film that was really kind of a standalone sci fi film and for all intents and purposes really wasn't screaming out for a sequel. I know there had been conversations about, hey, let's make a sequel of this, but it never really seemed to. Be serious.、Um, and so I was a little skeptical. I mean, I, I thought the film set up, uh, uh, the first film set up a pretty solid storyline and a pretty clear arc for,、uh, for Deckard's character. And, you know, seeing the trailer for this, I'm like, why is Harrison Ford still alive? And it really kind of plagued me and it made me really nervous about this.、Um, but I feel like the filmmakers. Uh, and the storytellers who were all involved in, in making this, they were smart about making a sequel and they did it in a way that I felt was, was pretty respectful of the original film and of the, the entire world that,、um, that those, those filmmakers had created. And I feel like they、um, did a good job of, of finding ways to. Make everything make sense. You know, there, I felt like there,、uh, there was enough for me to buy into why、uh, Deckard lasted for so long.、Uh, I, th- it never really is spelled out, but the fact that, you know, Rachel, we see some of her bones and she was a Nexus 7, which, you know, they seem like the, an early version of the Nexus 8 where they kind of live, you know, a natural life. And so then it kind of assumed that, well, Deckard was probably of that make. And he lasted、uh, as long as, as he did. So they, they came up with reasons for everything. And I really feel that it sold the story really well. So I had a really good time with this. And I, I just wasn't sure what to expect going into it. But I, I did have a great time. This is the completion of the Blade Runner story. I mean, this is the companion to the original. I was transported back to the same world, the music, production design, lighting. I had just watched, you know, Blade Runner Final Cut last week, and I just, 
I watched those little shorts that sort of filled in some story points. Um, I probably could have gotten by without them. Uh, I just really enjoyed this a lot. It, it did everything that I think I was hoping for, which is to tell a really mature, complex story that tackles some big questions, doesn't give easy answers to everything, but which is what I think was so great about the first one, because, you know, 40 years later, there's still debates and discussion about is Deckard a replicant? And here's the evidence that says he is and maybe he's not. And we've got like four versions of the film. There's it was just such ripe source material. And I, I love how they respected that and were able to move everything forward and tell a story that didn't feel like a cobbled together sequel, but a story that was the natural extension of the first film. I'm, I'm a little bit torn personally on how I'm going to see this as a, as, as a standalone film, like for people who, you know, you both have said it's been a long time and there are going to be people who see this movie who haven't seen the first and it needs to be able to satisfy, you know, them as well. Does it, does it hold up as a, as a standalone film for people who haven't, haven't seen the first one? For me, it, it absolutely doesn't need to. I, like you, Steve, I watched the final cut uh, yesterday uh, in preparation for this, and uh, I feel very much like um, this movie was uh, deeply respectful of the original, of the vision, of the, you know, the Ridley Scott vision and uh, of, of the sort of... Uh, cyberpunk kind of uh, not a cyberpunk noir you know whatever you want to call it the look the feel of it the other thing i think they did really well is that they they built so much right i mean it, there was real substance and texture and and just like weight to everything you know you could and and in interviews with villanova talks about how important it is that the actors are able to inhabit every prop every you know every the the spinners the the, the sets they're all built they're all manufactured and and um, you know obviously accentuated with cg but but you can really feel the substance of this movie like few other science fiction movies today um i i got a real feel for the actors familiarity on set and and i think you know you get these real highlight sequences that i can't shake you know Niander's office uh, that floating platform on the water with the lights that are constantly, you know, moving and fading and shading in and out. It's it is, it's just a stunning visual treat. And for that reason, I'm I find myself a little bit lost uh, because it's so beautiful and so long that I I just know I have to see this film again and again and again uh, to to feel like I've actually taken it all in. Uh, on the note of of the mystery, I, I feel like we just have to talk for a minute about. Um, you, well, I guess there, there's sort of there's a meta a meta puzzle here, right? The the storyline, as you've mentioned, of of the Deckard replicant question, uh, is it answered in this film? satisfactorily because we know that Ridley Scott, I mean, hell he's on tape saying that Deckard is a replicant. And we know that Harrison Ford says, no, Deckard's not a, not a replicant. Uh, and I just watched an interview with Harrison Ford on vice and the delightful interviewer, uh, says, you know, is, is Deckard a replicant? And he says, I'm, it's resolved. That question is resolved. Uh, but I'm not going to tell you. And she says, well, God damn it, Harrison, why not? Because Vice News is awesome. <laughs> and, and his answer was, because then the question would be answered. 
and there would be no more reason to debate. And I love and hate Harrison Ford for that answer because I, I feel like I need it. I need it more, more sort of <laughs> solid than that. Um, uh, so, what to your satisfaction is 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 this a, a resolved issue? Is Deckard a replicant? Do you want us to do you want us to yeah. end the debate right here? Yeah, end it for me. End it for me. I'm, I'd be curious if you agree. Do you want to say it on a count of three? We're playing rock paper scissors replicant. I think he absolutely is. I think it's pretty clear. I th- I think it's ambiguous. Uh, I I, th- I think it's ambiguous <laughs> because there's there's no definitive evidence for me because we get we get the you know close up examination of Rachel's skeleton where we see you know serial number on there. We have you know the hair. We have n- no testing that's done to to Deckard or anything to indicate whether he is or is not. The fact that you know getting into story now of a replicant that is able to have a child to me skews the case towards Deckard possibly being human because it's a combination. The child is a combination that's part replicant, part human, which I think maybe explains a few things about the child versus replicants being able to reproduce on their own. Because if, if there's something special about either Rachel or Deckard as a replicant, and that's, that could be one way to resolve this. Is there something unique about how they were created that allows them to reproduce? Or is it something about the combination of human and replicant that is creating this? And to me, it's one that I feel that you can go either way and you can be satisfied either way with how you approach the story. Because to me, it's not an important pivotal question that needs to be answered. It's the one that I think people want answered. But to me, the story is about such larger, more philosophical questions about, you know, identity and, and belonging and self that whether or not one character is or is not one thing does not matter to me that much. Ooh, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I can see what he's saying. I I, I get the the point, but I I feel like there has been enough evidence. And, you know, this is one of those things that I think is interesting because you're right. They've never come out and blatantly said uh, in in context of the film, like in the story, they've never said, well, Deckard, you're a replicant. But I feel like there has been evidence. Now, I feel like this is one of those things where it's probably the filmmakers planting evidence just to make people, you know, assume one thing, um, but they aren't giving you the final answers. And so you could probably, you know, find evidence pointing the other direction as well. But I feel like in the first Blade Runner, you have uh, those telltale signs of the way their eyes will glow when light hits it. And you see that on Deckard when he's uh, kind of talking to Rachel and he's kind of in the background out of focus and you see that glow in his eyes. And then there's the whole unicorn, the dream that he has of the unicorn with the little thing. I mean, those are things that I've always taken that, uh, you know, the people in his precinct understand that, you know, he is a replicant. Gaff knows it. He leaves the little unicorn uh, for him because he knows that he has that unicorn dream implant in him. Um, And in this film, I mean, he says, you know, they've been hunting us. I mean, now, again, you can kind of, 
you know, step past all of that and say, well, yeah, but there's all these other things. So, I mean, I, I think that Steve's right. It's it's a question that they don't feel the need to answer because it may not really matter in the scheme of things, but it is a fun debate to have. Well, and I think it does matter in the context of this film uh, that the debate is going on simply because we're introducing, even introducing in the script, the language of miracles, right? You haven't actually seen a miracle, says Dave Batista's character, uh, Sapper Morton. And, and so once we're in there, once we're talking about, you know, mechanical life uh, evolving to uh, you know, biological life, at least to the point of being able to give birth, then we have to be open to the fact that, or to the possibility that uh, mechanical life could evolve to age, right? Something that we haven't really explored, right? And and we didn't know because, it, you know, they're, what their age, you know, systems were like with these sort of un, um, the, the unlimited age uh, models, right? We just didn't know. And so I think it is kind of important that we at least have that in the back of our mind to, to, to understand, you know, what are the, how many layers of, of miracle are we addressing here? I think it makes the film more interesting to me. I will say just a last point. I, I, I miss my time to die speech. You know, I miss that climax at the end, the, you know, who's my Rutger Hauer in this film? Uh, I, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I got it. it the, um, you know, the thing that I'm going to go back to, um, you know, to talking or to quoting over and over and over again yet. No, I, I didn't feel like the script had that sort of moment, but I do feel like it had a lot of really great moments. And I, while, you know, I, I agree, I, I really love some of the, that sort of dialogue. I did feel like there were some, some moments that are going to stand out for me. And I mean, I think that the, 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 the fight, uh, on the, I, I guess you could call it the shore, the the metal shore that that they're battling yeah, the wall, on. Against the wall, right. right? Against that kind of that wall with, uh, I think it's love, love and K uh, are fighting out there, and um, I, I thought that was just kind of a really fantastic scene. I, I enjoyed the intensity of it with the waves kind of crashing in. Um, I, and there were a lot of moments like that, like yeah. all through this film. I, I really felt like the filmmakers. Uh, took the moments from Blade Runner and really just kind of kept giving us a lot of the the meat. And um, it felt wholly authentic in this world. And so it, I didn't have those moments, but to a certain extent, I was okay with it because I felt like, you know, I, it, it had wrapped me in it so much that I felt like I was... I was still in it without needing those. Yeah, you know, and and to your to that point, and not to belabor this too much, I promise. But it never made sense to me if Deckard was not a, a replicant. It never made sense to me that he would be a Blade Runner, and that's something that this film I feel puts to bed. That we we now have this cast of people who are Blade Runners, and it's just out there because they are a model of replicant that doesn't run, that is more sort of subservient, but uh, you have to have a Blade Runner go after replicants because there's no one else who's strong enough to do it, right? The the opening fight between, uh, you know, um, Kay and Sapper Morton is evidence of that. That is a shocking physical beating uh, as he is just 
just smashing Gosling's head uh, into the into the wall and then through it. Um, and, and there's just no no substantive physical consequence like that. That answers the question that replicants have to take down replicants. And there was another. There must have been something else that that you know couldn't do it for me anyway. Uh, that that they couldn't talk about the fact that he was a replicant because he was a Blade Runner, and that would shock his system. So, uh, and that fight at the end that you're talking about is another one that just cements that. There's that's that's a a fight that is would be physically impossible for a non-replicant to have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hampton Fancher and Michael Green. Uh, Michael Green is, I guess, stepping in, <laughs> playing the role of of uh, David Webb Peoples uh, as uh, credited <laughs> on the, the original screener. But Hampton Fancher is back. It's a really solid script. I mean, yeah. bringing back somebody who had worked on the original script, I, I think was smart. I, I, for some reason, I always thought, I can't remember. I watched the, uh, the making of the, that, uh, what was that documentary called? Dangerous Days, the making of Blade Runner. Yeah. Uh, really amazing. But it's been so many years, I can't remember. But I feel like there was some something going on between Hampton Fancher and, and uh, David Webb, People, Webb Peoples as far as like who ended up really writing the script that we ended up with. And I feel like it was David Webb Peoples and Hampton Fancher's initial version wasn't the one that they focused on quite as much yeah. so yeah. of between the two writers it was a little interesting to me that they went with hampton fancher i don't know if they tried i, I don't know the history of this particular screenplay but that being said i feel like these people really captured the essence of the world so like i said i just i was really impressed with what they brought to the table here yeah no i mean i was i was concerned because when I look at Michael Green's credits, he and you compare him to David Webb Peoples, and there's, I mean, two, two totally different caliber writers, in, in my opinion. Because I look at David Webb Peoples, and you've got Blade Runner, you've got Unforgiven, you've got Twelve Monkeys. I mean, some really just compelling, strong writing. And with Michael Green, you know, we saw earlier this year, and it was sort of a split decision for me, Logan. And Alien Covenant. And thankfully, I think I got more Logan than Alien Covenant uh, from Michael Green in this in this script. So I, I'm happy to see that. And I, I don't know the nature of the collaboration between the two or the contributions, but um, I, I thought they tackled a huge story. There's twists. The way things just it kept me moving along and it gave me what I, I needed and it, it took its time to tell everything it didn't you know this was a movie that it it starts and it's not dumping exposition i get i got some text at the beginning to just sort of set up like the basic premise but i don't have exposition dumps throughout here really i it's characters engaging with each other in ways that i felt uh, you know it's it's an adult movie and the fact that it's these are mature adults interrogating each other regarding you know what they're trying to accomplish or who they are and it, it's just at a very cerebral level and i appreciate that that it's not talking down to its audience it's keeping you in the dark about some things it's recontextualizing certain information later on that's just so many things that it's doing that i i again can't wait to go see this again to just really enjoy everything and have a chance to really engage on it because there's so much stimulus going on for me in this with, with visuals that I was so compelled by because of wanting to see the faithfulness to the original. 
that now I feel like I can really pay a lot more attention to story, dialogue, and, and really engage on a deeper level with that. Yeah, it's a movie that really, um, you know, and I, and I feel like this is a bit rare, a big budget, major science fiction motion picture that trusts the audience enough uh, not to do the exposition dump. And that it, it's rare, and it feels so much like the original uh, film, even though, and, and I think actually this is an improvement over the original film, we don't have any sequences in here, to my ear, that are unclear in their narrative purpose uh, beyond just uh, giving us um, exposition, like in the, you know, the lieutenant's office in the first movie where we have this explanation of, you know, here's here's Roy and they were their replicants. And, um, you know, there is a feeling on first, you know, first watch of that scene that why are they telling us all this? He's explaining all of this to a Blade Runner who should know. And and when you, you know, you listen to the commentary, you hear the writer say, well, you know, he's trying to explain that things are different than uh, than they were the last time Deckard worked to, for the department things are different he needs to know what's up and and so there is a purpose to it but it's not clear and it it looks clumsy until you actually hear somebody talk about it and it's something i hear it's a constant complaint uh, about the first blade runner is is this this exposition this that's only for the audience's sake and and you have to really work to forgive that i didn't get any of this in the script uh of for 2049 to my ear and unless you guys feel like you missed it was there anything that you that that just seemed you know, sloppy like that? No, I mean, I, I it was. I mean, it's a, it's a long film, but they. I feel like they take their time with everything, and I feel like it's all very intentional. Like everything felt so intentional throughout. It was, it was quite impressive. And very patient. Uh, you know, it really took its time, and I think that you know, you you tie in the script to the unbelievable visuals most of the time. And I, I'm with you, Steve. That that opening shot in particular, the of the eyeball. Uh, you know, which is is such an iconic close-up. Uh, the way the first film uses eyes, the affinity with eyes in this movie um, is—it's like a love letter to the first film. It's just beautiful. But to open with it, that huge dramatic eye, that incredible soundscape, uh, cutting to the the farms. Uh, those oh, yeah. crazy protein farms as we're flying over it—it uh, it just ends up being a, a lovely composition and really expansive on on what we saw in the first film. I mean, the first film felt, um, in retrospect, very small compared to this one. I mean, it's such a big, it was already such an intense, uh, amazing sci-fi film anyway. But this one, I I mean, there's so much more stuff that we get to see. We get to go to these farms like you just brought up. We get to go down to the the trash wasteland of San Diego or whatever it is now. We get to go to Las Vegas. Uh, There's these different... um, parts of the world that we get to explore now um, and the airport, which is out in the middle of the ocean. Like there was a lot of really exciting new things that we got to see. So I, I just loved how they expanded on the world. It was, it was just, uh, I, I just, it was really great. And they just did a, a marvelous job of, of giving us that expansion. Did either of you uh, c- go home and, and start looking for your own joy? <laughs> I, okay. I feel like the artificial intelligent relationship in this movie was, uh, y- you know, pretty much, uh, 
don't know how I can say this without getting in trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's just say Anna de Armas did a, a, a terrific job uh, playing Joy and the artificial intelligent relationship. I was worried when he got back to his apartment and started having this conversation with nobody. I thought that was very clever and very cool. And as soon as I got it, I was worried that it was going to become a gimmick. Yeah. And man, it was anything yeah. but. It wasn't gimmicky. It wasn't a distraction. It was a substantive character relationship with an AI that made total sense, like hand to glove. And I wanted to just shout it from the rooftops. I loved that part. Am I alone? Oh, no, no. I, what I really loved was you're projecting technology, you know, 30 years in advance from now, but you can see it grounded in things that exist today because you've got a hologram that's walking around because you've got this huge ceiling rig mounted with a camera to track, you know, he eventually gets the upgrade, but I'm looking at that saying, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I can see that as a concept right now in a prototype form where it's like, oh, you mount this in your room. This thing is going to swing around all over your, your room, you know, attached to the ceiling to project this hologram that you're going to interact with. And then even the concept of a replicant, who's self-aware he's a replicant because he talks about his memories and knowing that those memories are implants. So yeah. he knows he's not human. He's not operating under that illusion. And he has to entertain himself an AI. So you've got yeah. a human replicant AI of just sort of this food chain of like artificiality. And so his relationship, you know, with, with joy, I thought was, was very interesting to see, see that and what, that says about him and his need to to connect. And then what she does with the relationship was just, oh my gosh, of, you know, she's present everywhere. I love the the whole Peter and the wolf theme, you know, being tied to her, that it would pop up at different points. And the fact that she finds companionship for him because she's there to be there for him in whatever capacity that is, was just something that just came out of nowhere. And I thought, this is so enriching for me to see that they're spending much this much time into these characters oh that the the sex scene was amazing i have never you know we talk sometimes about you know the little gifts that these films give us the things that we've never seen before i have never seen that ever and it was it was so smart and super sexy and really emotionally intense uh, and and not uh, it, it wasn't just some sort of objectification. No. And the technology, I mean, with the CGI, how you're doing this visually, it was just astounding. And that's one thing this film does so well is we're going to use some some really advanced, you know, CGI and effects but we're not doing it to show off. It's in service of the story of how can we do this? How does this fit in? And to me, that scene of where where Joy's you know telling her, "Hey, shut up, stop moving. I'm getting synced," so that yeah. they her her image will be mapped onto her. And the slight delay, the lag, just so trippy looking. But just I'm looking at this like dumbfounded. This like this looks good. It looks really good. This is not one of these hokey things where they're just sort of layering one thing on. It was astounding to me. That's that right. Went. This ain't no second life. No way. Yeah, it was uh, just, it was, it was smartly done and it thematically made sense. And that's why I think it it's a big success because 
they they integrated that idea of that companionship so well into the story that, like you said, Steve, you want to integrate the effects in a way where it's it's not just for show. And they they not only integrated it into the story, but thematically as well. And so it just it became so um, so perfectly um, logical for it to be for it to be there. And so I had I had such a great time watching uh, watching those scenes uh, and just er- every scene with joy, the the uh, the sex scene when uh, joy is with uh, I, I can't remember the other actress's name who who uh, comes in there, but just the way that that all plays out is just so fascinating. I will say just as a side note with joy, um, just as far as uh, a, you know, a, a random little note, um, it's it was odd to me that um, not that I was looking for it, but it was odd to me that Joy was the only model that they advertised, and there was no, there were no other models, and there were no male models. I was like, it's kind of odd that the only person out there is a female companion. I assume there must be others, but that's all we had. Yeah, that's interesting. Although I have to say, like, just the, the fact that it was just Joy and the the final, I guess, ultimate. Um, uh, d- destruction of his image of of kind of who he is at the end uh, or after it comes out that in in fact he's you know he's not who he expected to to discover that he was and he's walking alone down that that raised highway and he sees the giant you know eight story uh, joy hologram advertisement nude standing next to him and she uses the same language and calls him Joe and pokes at him uh, you know what a day huh you know the all that stuff um, that actually that it turns out she was a generic kind of print of this companion made his kind of realization uh, that much more um, real or human uh, yeah. than I think I expected yeah. it to be mm-hmm. um, and, and I thought that was really classy yeah, it, definitely. Yeah, exactly. When we first started talking about uh, about Denis, uh, I think we were all uh, we were all nervous. And I, th- gosh, I feel like when we found out that Denis was going to have this movie, it was a long time ago, and we've seen a, a couple of of his films since then. And I, I think as it, it, you know, he has quickly risen to one of your very favorite filmmakers, Steve. Uh, oh, how, how did he do yes. uh, as a director? Oh. oh, I mean, just tremendously respectful of sort of the source material. But I, you know, I think he just, he can, I don't know. He's He's got the magic right now. And, you know, I was really thrilled after seeing Arrival last year to see here's a guy that can take a really complicated story and he, he can, he can, tell it well without losing the audience without getting people confused and he can do it in a way that is entertaining multiple times on viewing and so i think you know i go back to you know i think the first film of his we watched was you know we did on the film board we did prisoners Mm -hmm. you know and i think that i i recall that being a film we had a lot of interesting discussion about i think he's been able to continually find stories that are more than sort of the genre that they fall into, that there's some complexity in character. He always is able to lift that up to the top. This isn't just a director that's all, all style. He's able to really put together these stories and, and really put them out there for us. So I, 
I am still cautiously optimistic about his next project being Dune, but after this, I I have much you know more faith in that studios are willing to trust him to to do things that I think are really out there on the edge that you know fly in the face of oh this is what popular opinion wants we're going to get this more of the same and let him risk something and trust him with that because he delivers you know just art that is you know astounding to me i yeah i i would just on on that last point this movie has resolved for me any question about dune because for me in my you know heart of hearts this is a much more sort of uh important story to handle deftly and he did that uh than dune so i i have every confidence that that he'll be able to pull off dune no question. I wonder if uh, Dune's going to end up happening. It's it's such a, a big film, uh, such oh, a big yeah, story to tell. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, as excited as we are about this particular film, it is really falling flat at the box office, which uh, makes me wonder yeah. if that's going to be something that might affect uh, Deneuve's ability to pull something like Dune off or, or to, to let for the studios to let him have the money to do it. It might yeah. be too ambitious of a project for mm-hmm. anyone to jump on board with. At the, True. That's curious. So, yeah. yeah. That is interesting. I, I hope this uh, this sort of stretches its legs a little bit as more people start talking about it because I think it's I think it's worth I it. I hope so too. I, I think he's uh, one of the, the great directors working right now. The stuff that he brings um, to the table is just really really solid um and i just i enjoy the way that he tells his stories he is uh, not afraid of handling complex stories i think we've uh, you know every film i've seen of his uh starting with incendie up to this has been a relatively complex story and he is a person who knows how to tell that story and and does it in a way where you know what's going on, but but and and you don't feel you don't feel lost. I mean, I really appreciate the way that he kind of pulls that off because it's it's hard, I think, for sometimes for filmmakers to do that. And I think that he handles little moments really well. I also think he handles uh, big intense moments really well. I think he's shown that uh, a number of times. And certainly in this particular film, we have some just amazing, amazing small character moments that are incredibly poignant and touching and just, just kind of heartbreaking. Um, and then you have some some big you know action scenes. So he's he's one of those filmmakers who I think really can handle all of it in a complex story and in a big world. And so I really love and respect everything that he's bringing to the table right now. I can't wait to see um, an average shot length measure of this movie because I oh, yeah. I feel like he has and and that's something that you notice in in Blade Runner too, especially the the uh, the final cut uh, that he has incredible patience to let shots run uh, to let the you know the 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 heart of the scene is over characters are done speaking and yet we're gonna stay on them for 20 seconds as they walk out of the scene out of the frame and we're gonna track uh, you know uh, out of the frame to show you what's going on in the city around uh, our central actors as they live and engage in it and that sort of context is so palpable in 2049 I mean you get so much glorious context 
what's going on, where they are, how the camera moves. Like, I feel so intimate with every major set piece. I feel like I could just walk in and know where the bathrooms are, you know, from, yeah. um, you know, from the, the Terrell uh, place to uh, the Burning Man set uh, to, you know, wherever. I feel like I'm, I, I'm in it. And, and that is, God, that's to be respected in our, you know, as we're going through a, a series where shot links are, cruising down below four seconds it's it's really cool and and they're beautiful shots too yeah. i mean they they just they 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 last they uh nothing feels slow and bogged down i mean it's it's all beautiful it's all artistic it's all planned and i think that he and his team know how to do that it can be a very challenging thing to do but i think they do an amazing job with it here the cast I, we've got ryan gosling he is the blade runner uh, how did he how did he pull it off i i've i haven't read any commentary about him and his performance and i like him a lot i i'm a fan of ryan gosling and his work but i have heard people uh you know friends family who don't like him as much they find that he is um he is sort of under emotes in other movies and boy (laughs) are they gonna have a field day with this (laughs) yeah (laughs) well luckily it works in context of him being a a replicant right yeah I don't know if I've ever been disappointed with Gosling. I'm not one of those people who has that issue. Mm-hmm. I loved him, this this similar sort of character that he plays in Drive, that kind of closed off uh, character. Um, I think that he excels at that, and he does a great job of, of playing this conflicted Blade Runner. And it's interesting watching his, you know, his uh, two different, uh, what did they call those tests? The baseline, the test. baseline tests. Just the, the subtle differences in the way that he was answering between the first time and the second time. It's It was so interesting to me because it's such an intense <laughs> test. But clearly there's something in his brain that's making him not answer correctly. And they're just like, oh, you're just, you are so far from, from doing well on that baseline test. And it was, it was so interesting, but it's just such subtle things that he does that I think that he's, uh, he's really kind of a, uh, a, just one of the, the, the top actors right now for me. Appreciated those moments where it's sort of like the emotions are very subdued, but then you have the moments when he goes to visit sort of the memory maker woman and you know she says well let, let me see the memory that you're you know think about the memory and I'll, I'll tell you if it's you know I'll tell you about it and she, you know we have that moment and she looks at it and says no this was this was a real memory this happened to somebody and he he thinks it's him and this you know this this we have a huge emotional response for him and then when there's sort of a twist and you know the the child that he's been looking for he f- discovers that it's a that it's a girl that he should be looking for and there's just this shift with with him as well whereas he thinks he's on the trail for one thing and it's going in a different direction there are those emotional moments that i think he carries across really well and as pete referred to even earlier the moment with the big joy billboard there there are those moments and i think it's a credit to denny of letting the camera sit you know on him to to give him the time to do that and i thought it was a nice balance of the the calm and subdued replicant with these other peak moments that to me worked really well without going over the top the the opening sequence uh with dave batista the we have a a glimpse of that that i thought was really touching when after they've been fighting and fighting each other and he's he stands up and says please don't get up 
I, I thought that was just, <laughs> the delivery was just perfect. I was right in it. <laughs> uh, Robin Wright uh, plays uh, Lieutenant Joshi, uh, Madam, uh, and uh, she's... Wow, I well, of course, I'm I'm super fan of Robin Wright. I, I think she's just fantastic. She brings her um, House of Cards kind of flair to this uh, yes. to this role in in particular. Uh, one of the things that really struck me is just how sane uh, her reactions were. Uh, that she wasn't a maniacal evildoer. She really it felt legitimately like she was protecting the future that she thought was in peril. Oh yeah, I th- I mean the 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 conversation about you know there's this wall and if they both you know if both think it doesn't exist you know that leads to war and then the moment you know the other scene where she's at his apartment to talk with him you know or two that, that really stand out for me of these you know she knows you know and she even admits you know sometimes she forgets that he's a replicant that's how yeah. good. He is at, at, at some of these things he does. And to me, those it, it was an interesting way to see her, you know, interacting with him to communicate those, you know, I'm your boss, I'm doing these things. But then also sort of that that opening up that the personal connection that she shares with him. Jared Leto is Nyander Wallace. And here's another one. He has been portrayed in interviews as the bad guy in this film. Is he the bad guy? I, I think that goes to your point earlier about where's your Rutger Hauer, you know, you know, monologue moment. And we we don't get that type of thing because it's not that type of movie. He's that not that type of villain. Not to say he doesn't speechify, because he certainly goes on while he's uh, slicing the yeah. the uh, replicant's belly open. Oh, he does. Yeah, he does. And I think, you know, it's an interesting character. And I think having watched the, the three little shorts that sort of fill the gap in time, because there's one that focuses on him that explains, it gives a little bit more about him and the new replicants and how he sort of positions and leverages himself to get into the position of power that we see him at in this film. Uh, Cause the short focus is more on him starting down that path of, I've got these new replicants that, that obey no matter what uh, there, there is a little bit of that in here. And, you know, he always refers to them as his angels, which I think is an interesting uh sort of little quirk about him. But what I appreciate is he's, he's sort of the visionary that sees this potential and is frustrated by the limits that he's, he's bound by of, you know, he can't make enough of these because there could be billions, which means there could be trillions. And, you know, we we're you know, on nine planets and we should be at the edges of the universe, you know, at all these stars and he has such grand visions. And so it's not the maniacal evil corrupt. It's the, you know, let me, let me have my grand vision because I've done so much for humanity. There is so much more than I can accomplish. I'm frustrated. It's not out of, you know, evil selfish intent that i that i see strongly it's you know the desire to do what he feels is best which i think always makes for an an interesting for lack of a better term villain but i guess you know antagonist to the story it's interesting you bring that up too because part of what i i like so much about his angle is that he's making a very real and contemporary economic argument that we have to make more replicants because we don't have enough people to do the work that needs to be done. 
right? Well, right. we're we're there like now. We need more people to do the work that needs to be done. And uh, the the solution in in this universe is you know robots that look like humans but are really strong. And uh, it it presents something for us uh, that mirror to hold up uh, to think about how what links will we go to to solve this very real and present economic challenge. But he does it in a way that you know a, a slave master uh, sp- spins his his logic to yeah. you, right? Yep. As yes. to oh, as to yes. why, yeah. uh, which which I thought was really interesting, and the whole fear that he has of the possibility that they uh, that these replicants might have a baby because of what it could end up representing. Uh, for his own business. So I, it's it's interesting how it, it is also business-minded for him, but really I think it speaks on such a, a much higher level. So it was a fascinating character. I really liked him. And I was uh, endlessly impressed by uh, Sylvia. Uh, is it Hoax or Hakes? Hoax. 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 Sylvia Hoax. I don't know uh, <laughs> if I had seen her in anything before, but uh, she was so mesmerizing and brilliant as the uh, as as uh, as Wallace's replicant sidekick and the way that she handled herself was brilliant and I, I loved her what I think is really her defining moment uh, in her final fight when she comes at him uh, comes at uh, at, uh, at Gosling's character and is just like I'm the best you know it, it, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's like that says so much of who she uh, who she was as a character and I was like wow that's okay I know what you know there's a lot more to her motivation uh, than just kind of helping Wallace achieve uh, what uh, what he's trying to do. I, I mean she you know she tears up when he's killing these other replicants and oh, stuff. I mean, yeah. There's, it, yeah. It's a really yeah. complex character and I was I, I'm so fascinated by her and I'm really looking forward to watching this again just to kind of see more of, of what she's just the little things that she's doing. It's Truly. really brilliant. Oh yeah. Or the the scene with with Madame, where she comes in and she's like, "Oh, oh yeah. you know, replicants! Oh, that we can't lie. Well, I'm going to tell him that you came after me with a gun, and I had to defend yeah. myself. Uh, basically, you think you know what we're capable of, but you really don't understand us. And you know, just really, again, like I said, the replicants, the the level of self awareness. Whereas in the first film, it was they were aware that they had an expiration date, and that was sort of what was driving that rebellion of we want more life. Whereas this is, I think, a, a different level of finding their place and purpose. It's not just about more life. It's, you know, we see a whole movement of we need to be recognized as a people. Yeah. And and her evolution over the course of the film was really quite special in, in that same regard. Right. She doesn't yeah. become we think she's a, a host. You know, we think she's the Rachel. Uh, right. Yeah. But but she turns out to oh. be the the thug. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she's. It, I thought that was a really interesting um, transition and great use of of character. Uh, yes, she's terrific. A number of of uh, other interesting ancillary characters. Um, you know, David Dasmalkian and Lenny James and Barkat Abdi and and. Uh, uh, but we do have this. You know, Dave Batista, whom we've mentioned, and Jared Leto. Uh, they don't have huge roles in the film. Uh, they they have important roles, but not huge roles. Where we see more of them, where they get to sort of star in their own uh, story, is in the shorts that that kind of went along with this movie. 
It was nice that they had those shorts so that we could get a little more of these characters and a little more backstory because, I mean, Dave Batista, I mean, he's out of the film after 15 minutes or so, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the first 15 minutes and he's gone. Um, and so seeing that short with him gave me a nice little extra bit of, of who he was. Um, his short, more than any of them, felt more like a deleted scene to me. It didn't feel quite like just a standalone yeah, short. Absolutely. Uh, but it still was nice because it gave me a little extra a meat about who he is as a character. I really liked that backstory for him. Um, I, you know, you don't need any of them, I don't think. But I do feel all of them. I, I mean, I would argue that you're going to want to watch Blade Runner and the three shorts before you jump into this. I just I feel like there's a lot of meat in this story and you want to have as much uh, help getting into it because I think there's a lot to absorb. So, um, yeah, I say it's all pretty necessary to watch before jumping into this one. Finally, Sean Young is back uh, as Rachel, sort of. That was the most talked about thing. As soon as the credits started rolling, there was just a lot of discussion. I went with several people and there was a lot of discussion of, okay, what was that? Yeah. Because huh. we're trying to figure out and it's like the big mystery. It's like, okay, whether Deckard's directly, I don't care one way or another. I want to know what was that Sean Young? Because there's the, was that the Rogue One, you know, Peter Cushing, Carrie Fisher, or was that the like, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Civil War de-aging. Was she there and they de-aged her or was this, they created an entire CGI Sean Young based off of the footage from the original? Well, it's kind of like uh, what they did in uh, in Rogue One. It's uh, They had a, a, a performance actress there kind of acting her part and then um, uh, she came in and kind of they, they used her to kind of um, uh, pull some CG, um, some looks and all that sort of stuff, okay. and then kind of do some of that de-aging. I mean, this is kind of all my understanding of what they did. And then they also took archival footage from the 82 movie. Uh, they took images of her at the time, and they used all of that to kind of wow. create this digital version of her that uh, I thought was pretty impressive. You bought into it? I was taken out of it uh, pretty quickly, and uh, it it just didn't it didn't feel like that that was not a successful effect for me and I think it's because probably I, I I don't know I mean I just watched you know the final cut I just spent two hours hanging out with her and she, it it really it shocked me to the point where I I wasn't I wasn't in the scene anymore I think I bought into it because I was acknowledging that you know this is a, a another replicant version of her. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know, it's it's not going to be a, a flawless, perfect version. And sometimes her face didn't quite look Sean Young like. Well, and that's exactly what I'm talking like about. Sean Young. Yeah. That's what I'm talking. About. But but I'm like, but it's it's you know it's a it's this it's another recreated version of her. So I yeah. I I totally was fine with it because it. Felt like it fit in context of the film. I mean, even even Deckard points out, you know, it's like uh, her eyes were green, so it wasn't completely perfect. So I I totally like. I, I guess that's why I totally bought into it. Well, and that's what I mean. Like I really love that she was there. I love that Rachel walks up those stairs and and the entrance. God, it was perfect. Oh yeah. Uh, the the silhouette entrance, walking down that that weird, totally ineffective bridge over the water. 
was amazing. And, and just the overall look and the hair and everything was just perfect. And then they show her face and I was like, oh, well, that's not that that's doesn't feel as great to me anymore. Uh, I just was taken <laughs> out of the the effect didn't hold up for me as well. And I, I think it's just proximity to the original. But uh, what I did appreciate, and this goes back to a conversation I think you and Andy had during Search for Spock. When you're pulling in footage from the previous film in the sequel mm-hmm. that, you know, in Search for Spock, it was like, oh, they're watching, you know, Wrath of Khan. <laughs> what I appreciated was they're going to use that. They used that. You know, when Deckard first, you know, runs the Voight comp test on Rachel, but the way they did it was the audio and then the camera footage from the actual test equipment, which was just the eye. Yeah, the eyes go into the records. Yeah. And I, you know, and I thought we didn't get it from, you know, imaginary right. camera point of view. They pulled it in that way, which I thought was was perfect. That's that's the information they would have. There were no other cameras in that room to create that scene. So the, I, I loved how they were able to pull that in because I thought, how were they going to? What, what are they going to do? Are they going to recreate scenes? What are they going to do? So they've got that. And then the only other thing we have is we have Rachel. We've got footage, I believe, from the original of Rachel walking toward. But that's from Deckard's point of view. And I think that's sort of we're getting his memory of that. So I, that was one of those things of how do you build a sequel? How do you pull in those those moments from the, the original and do it in a way that's logical and makes sense for this film? Yeah, very effective. It was nice to see Edward James Olmos, uh, even briefly. Oh, he got a chuckle in uh, yeah. the audience. Everybody was, I think, happy to see him. I think it was a little a nice surprise for everyone. Was there a symbol that I missed? He was folding the the origami bull. Was it a bull or was it a ram? Like, I wasn't quite yeah, sure what I, it was. All right. So let's say it's a bull or a ram. Did I miss a symbol? No. <laughs> I actually, no, what either of not them mean. that I'm aware of. I, was, I feel like there might have been some intention. I mean, obviously, there was an intention of what they chose, but yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't pin, pin it down. Uh, Roger Deakins is behind the camera on this one. Good Lord, the colors. Was, was he yes. ever? Oh. oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my God. This, this, uh, it, I don't know. It, it, for me, I walked out saying that was, that's the thing he's been working toward. Yeah. The worst thing that, the, the worst thing that came out of Roger Deakins' uh, cinematography on this is the atrocious, uh, you know, split down the middle orange blue poster uh, pattern that they've taken from it. It's just like the worst version of that orange blue pattern uh, that people have fallen in love with for movie posters. And it's like his, his work is so perfect in this film. Why demean it by making these awful posters out of it? Yeah. And you know, what's, what's yeah. funny about that too, Andy, is that there are posters in the campaign that are brilliant, that are brilliant, yeah, right? You know, the, the, and that use colors. Well, I think the orange Harrison Ford standing in front of the giant uh, burning man statue with just blade runner 2049 over it. And then we have uh Gosling standing alone in blue hue next to the spinner and just, I mean, it's just great. It's those, those stupid hero posters where you have yeah, all the yeah. characters all stacked up that are just awful. I, uh, uh, yep. and, and he used those color tones so well in the film. Like he really did. It's just expert uh, use of of these hues that I think are super engaging and really set, give us a sense of um, you know how color is used to affect the scene or to to frame the scene for us. I mean, we get a really great sense when he moves from um, you know from the farm to downtown to uh, you oh know, yeah. I mean, it's just the the colors really lead us through the movie and and I think uh, uh, yeah the art design of the campaign didn't follow. 
No, I, it's it's it really was some of the just the most stunning cinematography. It was so perfect for this world. Yeah. I mean, it, just the, the change in tones and the 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 quantity of each of those tones. Uh, you know, watching it on such a big screen with just such intense oranges when he's flying into kind of like that Vegas area. Uh, it, it just was mesmerizing. It was it was just like haunting the way that it just that sandy orange color was everywhere and it just filled the screen from corner to corner it just it really was just fantastic absolutely fantastic and then you contrast that with the fight in the casino where you've got the holographic you know marilyn Monroe and liberace and elvis presley and, and vegas showgirls the holographic and the colors are just so vivid there this isn't one of these like let's desaturate the future and everything's sort of great we have those moments but then he's he gives us the color yeah. so well and so brightly and vividly that i mean it that's what vegas is right you know yeah. when it was you know flourishing outside yes it's all orange but color you know in the right time in the right place it, it just really i think helps establish the feel and setting of, of each of those places looking at the colors and the palette that he's using no matter where we are in this in this vast world that we explore through this film you know one more point on the the cast and and the way they do this the, the way the cast and the set the production design work together uh i sometimes i find that when you are in one of these big sci-fi uh experiences that you'll always have a, a, an actor on screen that has some sort of fish out of water excitement about where they are and what they're looking at right now right we have it in valerian we had it in jupiter ascending we have it like they're just in oh my gosh we're now in a giant hall somebody's gonna look up and be really impressed by the glitz and the glamour and that happened nowhere in this film i mean nowhere at no point did anyone seem surprised by where they were and i thought that was so cool they just this is where they live this is what it looks like that they live there it's not impressive it's not exciting it's not depressing it's just it it is what it is and and i I couldn't get over that i walked out of the movie uh just really impressed that nobody was impressed (laughs) i think the audience had more of those moments of awe yeah like when he gets to sort of what going to the the orphanage where the kids are and he walks in that building and we see sort of the stairways and everything and there was a there was an audible gasp from a few people of like, oh, that's the place from his dream. Oh my gosh. And I think his reaction to that of this is really familiar and just sort of that creeping unease. But it was, I think, again, the the awestruck spread reactions from the audience to these shots rather than yes, the characters who should not be in awe of the world that they're in. They should they not be it. in awe. Right. Right. That's <laughs> don't show me how impressed you are with yourself. And it makes sense uh, character-wise, too, coming from replicants, yep. right? If if he was doing that, it would have been like, why is this replicant kind of acting that way? Yeah. It would have felt out of character. Uh, mentioned production design. Uh, Dennis Gassner uh, headed up uh, production design for the film. It's beautiful. It's great. Congratulations. Stunning stuff. Um, stunning stuff. Really stunning oh, stuff. Yeah. Visual effects shared by MPC, buff, double negative, and frame store. Um, but besides Rachel's face, which struck my eye funny for any number of reasons, there's nothing in here that felt like it, it wasn't an earned visual effect. I, there were so many times where I looked at this and thought, we're there. You know, whether it's the, the dusty Vegas or the, the crumbling wasteland, orphanage land, or the city streets, I've thought, okay, how are they building all of this? Where, you know, 
they did a lot of production in you know in in Hungary. So I I'm just looking at all of these places, thinking they're they're so rooted there. The the visual effects were you know I know they're there. I just don't see them. Yeah, it all felt incredibly real. I I know they filmed some of it in like Spain and Iceland and Mexico. So they got some nice landscapes from some other parts of the world to tie in kind of just the the way that the the ground looked. I think they might have just been aerial shots, but they still gave us a sense of that world. But I mean, you're right. The sets felt so lived in and present. And whether it was like his apartment or or uh, Deckard's uh, hotel that he was living in, or the that uh, the whatever that crazy uh, the shoreline was, that big shore wall that they had, uh, or where all the children were. It all felt incredibly lived in and real and authentic. And I think that it speaks highly to finding real locations and not just relying on digital creations of things because it just everything feels so real, yeah, and grimy. <laughs> Yes. Goodness. And the snow, you guys, the snow was gorgeous, uh, leading all the way to the final shot of, of yeah. um, you know, Kay Ugh. laying down on the stairs in front of the memory lab. Uh, it was an incredibly emotional moment. I mean, just everything came together perfectly, uh, especially the callback to the to the, the theme from uh, from the first film uh, It was just such a beautiful gift. I just have to say, uh, the sound, I uh, was uh, blown away right from the start with the sound. I went and saw this in a a Dolby, uh, uh, just one of the Dolby cinemas uh, at my local AMC, uh, and they, uh, it's not like the rumble seats that you sit in, but they have uh, plenty of stuff to vibrate underneath you. And the way that the sounds came through, um, I mean, I felt like I was vibrating for half of the film. It yeah. was just so intense. Like there was so much bass in this film. These sound designers uh, went, I, I felt like the the team uh, between Theo Green designing the sound and then Ron Bartlett and Doug Hempel, who were doing the, the re-recording mixing, um, they they found like sounds that felt like they were from this world and integrated them in, in just the right way to it just just like the sets just like the the images that Deacons captured of of uh, Gassner's sets everything felt like it was a part of this world and it was just it just blew me away I I really was like uh, I, you know mind boggling uh, uh, at the the amazing sound coming at me from the screen. Oh, those guns? When those guns go off? I mean, that's that's a gun going off. There's some... Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever tell you otherwise. <laughs> no, it's not <laughs> boo, 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 yeah. or zing, zing. It's kabam. Yeah, those blasters just, are amazing. Yeah. Just, you know, they, there's there's some weight to the sound that just carry. And it, yes, it, a lot of the... I had the same experience with my seat rumbling just from the, the bass, and it just it, it gave some gravity. You yeah. know, for lack of a better term, to everything going on there. Yeah, I did the same thing with those. We have a the the RPX, the Regal Premier Experience, and those seats have the little rumble packs under them a little bit that just oh. do the extra vibration. When the the opening soundscape of the spinner flying over the farm was it, that was the vibration. Thought you, I was going to vibrate out of the seat. It was amazing. So music, the the Vangelis uh, soundtrack in the the original film is iconic. Uh, how well does Benjamin Walfish and uh, Hans Zimmer, how well do they 
recapture the original. I was initially disappointed um, when I heard that they were doing this and they didn't bring Vangelis back to uh, to do the score because I, I feel like it is such an iconic score. It's like you really need to have the same person come in to do it again. Unfortunately, uh, they didn't. Even though Vangelis is still busy and working, um, they did not bring Vangelis back, which was, uh, for me, it still is a disappointment. Um, and then uh, Johan Johansson, who had d- done some previous uh, scores for um, uh, uh, for Denis, uh, he did Prisoners, Sicario, and Arrival. He was on board to do the score. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. He's done some good stuff with him. Um, and then they ended up bringing Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Walfish in to kind of I don't know if they were working on it with uh, Johan, but somehow all of a sudden Johan wasn't on it anymore, and he was contractually forbidden from commenting on the situation. I was like, wow, okay, something really crazy happened over there in the uh, composing land for, uh, for 2049 that may not bode well. And I will, was, will say I was a little nervous about what they're going to do, because Hans Zimmer is a hit or miss for me. Um, but... I I was floored. Like it felt like it was Vangelis uh, composing. Like it just it fit so perfectly with it. Yeah, I had to. I hadn't been tracking anything going on with you know the production, so I was waiting in the credits. Like, okay, this it they just it's it's of a piece with the original. So I I was eagerly waiting. Okay, who who did this? Because I. I know that you know Denny works with with Johan Johansson, and I thought, okay, maybe he's done a, a nice job of doing this, or you know, are we going back to the original score? I, to me, again, it's that nice fluid transition from the original to this one, and that score helps carry that along. I, yeah, I thought it was good. I I feel like it was much more focused on on just sort of the underlying sounds uh, of a scene uh, that were sort of filled in with synth and and symphony, uh, and it was lovely. I feel like the Vangelis score offered us more uh, themes that that we could, you know, that I, I can sit down at the piano and play, you know, and and that I that are sort of beloved uh, to me as I listen to that score. It's it, it's much more memorable. And while I feel like this score fit the film perfectly, uh, it's it's rare that I feel like there was actually anything that was overtly musical and melodic. Uh, that that supported each particular scene. Uh, and, and so I need to listen to it. You know, I haven't actually sat down and listened to it yet, but um, but I, I look forward to it because, and, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope my memory is just playing tricks on me, but uh, I, it's not a memorable score. Well, yeah, to your point, I mean, I didn't walk out humming any themes or anything like that other than um, the the one theme that of Vangelis is that they do, do pull in right toward the end there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I'm curious to see how how it does hold up when listening to it on its own. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, we have Elvis and Sinatra in there? I know yeah. Steve over on our, uh, our Slack group, you <laughs> were commenting. You noticed that they were on the soundtrack. You're like, why are they? Included? Yeah, that I it threw me for a loop because I, you know, got online and looked, you know, for the you know track list and everything to see, and I saw you know Elvis Presley and and Frank Sinatra, and I thought, oh no. How does this work out? Because I always have concerns when you project into the future and you're going sort of retro and how does that work out? But I think it it served its purpose really well because we're that much farther in the future. There, It's in Vegas. These are two iconic, you know, Vegas singers that it makes sense that 
they would still be, you know, present in that location. So it, to me, it, it was fitting and it, it worked well. Yeah, it was brief in the film. Yeah, <laughs> you know, at least it, it definitely. I think it. I think it fit. There are still fans of Blade Runner, um, the non-final cut. I mean, there, this is an interesting film, just the history of it, because of the number of edited versions that Ridley Scott did over the years. Um, the original cut was, uh, I guess you could say, it had a bit more of a positive ending, um, kind of like the original cut of Brazil. It, it, it was just it's something that's, that I think stuck in, in uh, Scott's craw, and he went back and kind of tweaked it. And then he finally did the final cut, what, like 10 years ago or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it was like 2007 yeah. or something. And this is, uh, and I feel like this film pretty much kind of kills any other version. Like anyone who's a fan of that first version of, of Blade Runner, I'm just like, well, I don't know if this is really going to uh, work as well uh, as far as the sequel goes. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like the team was like, you know, we've got to make this sequel, but it's going to be from the final cut and <laughs> you're not going to be able to connect them as well. If you do, if you're a fan of the previous one, I, you know, I, it has been so long since I've watched the original that I don't even think I could tell you where those, where the doors have been closed um, uh, anymore. The The final cut is the only cut for me. I was, well, yeah. I mean, all I remember from the original theatrical is, you know, the, the voiceover narration and I believe the final scene is Deckard and Rachel in a car, like driving off into they're driving out in the country. Right. So, right. Okay, right. yeah. Well, they, they eliminate the unicorn dream. And so, and I, and they might even eliminate, eliminate the uh, unicorn uh, origami at the end. So there's really no sense that he is a, 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 a replicant in that version. That version really kind of says, Hey, I'm just a human. So, and as I said, you know, at the beginning of this one, it, it could be ambiguous. So I think, you know, you do end that version with them driving off out of the city, which does tie in. You can make that connection to, the, you know, the sort of the farm, you know, where, where this one picks up. So to me, that can work. Uh, or you go with the final cut, which, you know, is a, you know, much, you know, different feeling towards the end. And I think either one you can, you can fit. But from the interviews I've read, they, they intended to really build off of, you know, final cut. But I think, you know, fans of the original theatrical release, well, you know, I don't think it's closing doors or unraveling anything from that film that's going to cause conflict or, or problems. Yeah, maybe not. All right. Well, I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash TNR film board to look at all of the films that we have talked about uh, on the film board uh, and see how it stacks up uh, against other new releases at the time. Andy, where do we start? Uh, first off, we got Blade Runner 2049 or Steve's favorite, The Finest Hours. <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for a just like she did joke. You'll go see Blade Runner and you'll like it. Just like just she like did. she did. <laughs> oh no, this there is Blade Runner. Definitely yeah. Blade Runner. Definitely Blade Runner. All right, Blade Runner or Prisoners. Hey, look at that. Uh Blade Runner and I don't have to feel guilty about it. No, I'm I'm fine with it. yes. Yes, okay. Blade Runner for me. Prisoners is a tough one to watch. Yeah. I I have yet to rewatch that one. I'm not oh, quite sure. Es- I especially especially when you have children. That that's yes, a, a torturous film. Blade Runner 2049 or Guardians of the Galaxy. 
Blade Runner. Big and heavy or light and fun? Yeah, I mean, this might be part of the uh, the old post film hangover, but I'm I'm Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner. Yeah. Uh, Blade Runner or Edge of Tomorrow? Mm. It's getting more difficult, but I'm still Blade yeah. Runner. Blade Runner. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, Blade Runner or Logan? Blade Runner for me. Yeah. Michael Green is okay either way. Yeah, yeah right. No, no, yeah, it, I don't it, have to feel it, guilty exactly. there either. That's yeah. good. Yeah. All right, uh, Blade Runner or Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Mm. Okay, so this was an interesting conversation my brother and I had. We we didn't get into Harrison Ford's performance much in our discussion tonight, but watching this, you get the feeling that Harrison Ford just sort of rolled out of bed and said, well, this is what I'm wearing, and I'm here to work. <laughs> and, it, you know, I, I had read, you know, some of the challenges that J.J. Abrams had in directing Harrison Ford on The Force Awakens of trying to get a specific performance of, like, do it this way, and Harrison's just like, I'm doing it my way. When I look at the performances that he delivered in both those movies, I have to pick Blade Runner because there was so much more to his performance in this one. And I think the story and the depth and it's two films, you know, Star Wars and Blade Runner fond memories from my childhood. But as a, as a grown adult man, and I, I loved The Force Awakens, but I am so much more thrilled that there are films like Blade Runner 2049 that challenge an audience that give me a mature story to think about because this is a film that I think people can sit down and talk about once you delve and peel all the parts away about what it says about the nature of identity and memory and what it means to be a person and have a soul. There's lots of things to delve into. And for me, that's what sets it above the force awakens, which is a tremendously fun film. I will always side more towards the, the artful side and films that give you something to, to sink your teeth into. I'd like to say something, but Steve just said everything that I was going to say. <laughs> so, there you go. I'm going to vote just like he just did. Just like he did. Yes. Andy with the joke. Okay. I, I would just like to say uh, that I'm going to vote in favor of Blade Runner uh, because it is such a model for assistive devices for the visually impaired. Those little cameras were dope, oh. right? Oh, with my the, gosh. With the brain plug Yes. Yes. And uh, and so I know Jared Leto is a as a method guy. I know there is he is uh, up in arms about about people making fun of him for wearing blind contacts uh, like all the time. I I don't give him any uh, grief about that. I think he's he is a terrific actor and he did a great job in this film. But I could not get the blind cameras out of my head. I believe oh, he yeah. has those. Actually, I believe he has those and they're floating around all the time. That was amazing. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. Blade Runner. All right. Well, there it is, guys. It, we have a new number one on the film board's, wow. uh, the <laughs> film board's chart. Number one out of 63, Blade Runner 2049. Wow. Pretty impressive. Does Where does this stack up for you guys between the original and uh, the sequel? I, I think I'm I'm still uh, I, I'm still hungover, and I feel like it's too oh, premature to say you. that yeah. um, because right now I say I I would I definitely this is uh, I, I think the film that I would put ahead of the original, but the original is the original, you know. It's got a better score, and it has Rutger Hauer, and those those things are pretty important to me. For me, it's it's going to be the original. I think it's going to be hard to surpass that. It still can stand on its own as a as a solid film. This one, I have a hard time seeing this as a film that will ever be able to exist outside of the the first film. Like I just I don't feel like you could just put this on really. Yeah, I feel like you need to kind of watch them as as a pair. And so because of that, I feel like there's there's that 
that step down that it, for me it takes because I need to put um, Blade Runner first. I mean, it's it's an iconic film. It's a, an important film to me. Um, uh, but, you know, this is a close second. But that's also an enormous compliment, the fact that they made this film with such respect that it is considered of a piece with the first movie. Like, that's incredible. I oh. never expected it. Nope. No. And I, I, to me, what sets this one slightly ahead is the first one. It's it's a much smaller story, which is is great and is done well. But I mean, you really you're confined to a couple city blocks and it's, you know, those few characters. It tells a very small story and does it very well. And this tells a much larger story across greater, you know, sort of geographical space. It's, it really cracks that open. And to me, I, I love the larger questions that uh, at least this one I feel is asking, but I, you know, I look forward to like two, three years down the road, you know, sort of seeing how this one ages. So I, I'm, I'm with Pete. I'm sort of leaning more towards this one for those reasons. I will say, I hope that from this, they, uh, they do decide to do more little shorts because I had such a great time with the shorts and especially the anime version. I'm like, I, I don't know why there isn't an anime series in this world it's it's so perfect for it so uh fingers crossed that they uh do end up you know finding an audience and making some money and it it allows them to expand a little more and they should make one in the lego universe (laughs) are you saying blade runner lego yes oh my goodness (laughs) Uh, so where does that what where does that take us on letterbox letterbox.com slash the next reel uh out of five stars and uh, like or not like? So, Pete, if you were sitting next to me in the movie theater, you would not have heard any <laughs> stars leaving. It it had it had Cha-ching. five stars, and it and lost none of those along the way. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely uh, five stars and a heart. Yep, absolutely, same thing. Five stars with a big heart. Carry the one. Well, that does well. Yeah. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Uh, well, we're going to be uh, our, our next film board. We're going to be talking about uh, the remake of the Agatha Christie story, Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, is that a feature length film? I thought that was like an Imagine Dragons just music video. Yeah, I'm very curious about that uh, that music choice for the trailer. <laughs> I love oh, that song. Boy. You guys, cut, cut it out. It's a great song. It just but doesn't Why fit is it in the trailer? Is, yes, I don't. Didn't you guys see Sherlock Holmes? Uh, this is that. It's Murder on the Orient Express with effectively Robert Downey Jr. And a big okay. bushy mustache. Yep, yep, that too. All right, and uh, on the main show, we are still talking about Star Trek. We finished Next Gen, and so now we're back to the future with J.J. Abrams uh, and uh, Star Trek 2009. That's going uh, to be good definitely looking forward to it all right hey good talk gents uh thank you so much for seeing this movie and rating it so highly i was really nervous uh coming into this show uh but always a pleasure talking about films with you steve sarmento have a great week and you as well andy nelson i'll talk to you uh, uh very soon yes you will thank you everybody for listening to the film board you can find and follow us over on facebook and twitter and we would love it if you'd help us by joining up over on patreon.com slash the next reel consider giving us a rating and review on apple podcasts or even better tell the movie lovers you know that they should come hang out with us on the next reel because when the movie ends our conversation begins
You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on the Film Board and the rest of the Next Reels family of podcasts, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. There are so many great adaptations we've covered on the Film Board, available in audio form. The Bourne Legacy, Cloud Atlas, all three Hobbit movies. The book is so much better. Oz the Great and Powerful, or World War Z. There was The Monuments Men, the first two Divergent movies, and Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, I heard that book was awesome. What was it called again? All You Need Is Kill by Hiroshi Sakurazaka. Terrible title in either case, but a great read and a great movie. Absolutely. There's also The White Tiger and Stephen King's It. Plus Dune, which is one of my audiobook favorites. Oh, mine too. You know, producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. So now we're appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support the Film Board and the Next Reels family of podcasts. I've been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I've read hundreds of books through it. Couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free trial and get your first free audiobook at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.